Well, thank you, Charlie, for our song today, and thank you, Gail, for our prayer, and I'm happy to be with you, and I turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 14, to direct our time and our attention. I'm happy to be back with you. I was out last Wednesday night because of this uh, cold thing and sinus, you know, it keeps lingering on, but I've been to the doctor a couple of times, and so they're getting me all straightened out, and, and uh, I guess I'm doing better. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I am. After all that doctor visit, surely I must be by now. It, uh, but if I do move a little slower, you'll understand. Uh, I'm in Acts chapter 14. Let me think of a little bit about this important lesson and how we can uh, focus on it. And there are three great missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. This is the first one. We're in the middle of it. It covers about 1,300 miles. If by land and by sea, um, I can't be sure how long it took them. It might have taken them somewhere between 16, 18 months, maybe even two years to accomplish this great work. We saw what happened to them at Antioch Pisidia. We saw also what happened in this matter as they went to Lystra, and that's much of where we're going to be looking at today. They looked upon them from one perspective of being uh, gods and wanted to worship them as gods and then of course they found out know that they were not and they realized that uh, they were rejecting the worship that these pagans were offering them and Paul launches into this wonderful sermon in verse 16 which we studied just a little bit about last time and uh, there's a great verse there that you ought to mark we mentioned it but perhaps it bears mentioning again and that is in verse 17, and yet he did not leave himself without witness. He's talking about God there. God has not left himself without witness. There's evidence, sufficient evidence there for all to see that there is a great God in heaven. <clears throat> and he appeals to the um, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And look how God has blessed you with regard to the created world. He's created the world and he has blessed you because of it. So he appeals to the nature of God. And one of the points we were making last time that we were together was the point that Paul started where these people were. I mean, he, in Antioch of Pisidia, went to a synagogue. And naturally, they knew about God, and they were schooled in Old Testament Scripture. So he didn't have to go back to things like the nature of God in the beginning of the world and that kind of thing. But he did here because he's dealing with pagan people. And you have to really start with people where they are. And you can't just jump into the middle of a, a self-prepared sermon or some self-prepared Bible class. You've got to start with what they know and work from that and build from that. And that's the takeaway that I see in how Paul approaches this, the methodology in approaching these pagan people with the gospel. And that's what he's done. And he talks about the nature of God and how the nature of God can be known. Paul writes about that in Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. And it really talks about the uh, invisible things of him are clearly seen being understood by the things which are made. And so we can look at the world and see that there is a great designer. Now we wouldn't know that much about him, but we would know that he's there. God is there and he's not been silent. God is there and he's been maintaining the world in which we live and we should be able to see the divine design in the world and the handiwork of God in the world, Psalm 19 addresses that specifically. 
At any rate, <coughs> excuse me, he appeals to that matter. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifices to them, and that is our verse um, 18. And so they had difficulty restraining the crowd. They were determined they were going to worship them, and I gave some background to that last time. I don't know that it's that, that important, but at any rate, we can see something of the insistence of it. And I've just got to wonder, as I think back and in my own mind's eye, try to understand what's going on in the climate and the situation. And here the priests have come out. They've got these oxen all decorated up, garlands around their necks. They've got um, all the people prepared to worship. And then Paul and Barnabas are saying, no, no, we're not going to do this. We're not going to do this. And it was hard for them to restrain them. That's verse 18. They were determined that they were going to honor them and worship them. And that, of course, is not what God had in mind, not what Paul had in mind. And they must have felt somewhat of a rejection over that, I would think. I don't know. I, I'm just trying to put my own mind's eye into what's going on at the time. But I'm just wondering what these Lystra people were thinking at the time when God, uh, Paul says, no, we're not going to accept this worship. We don't worship that way. That's not what we're talking about. So there may be, might have been some kind of feeling about that particular matter. And that might help us understand verse 18 a little better. And that is that they had a hard time restraining the people, but they would not accept that worship. And they were committed to that. It, only God is to be worshiped and not man. And these pagan people simply had to be taught and understood. Yes. Well, I think that's more of what he would say in Romans chapter 2. Now, that would help me with that. Romans chapter 2 talks about the law of the conscience. They were following their own conscience. And man has a conscience. He didn't have a positive law like God had given to the Jews. He gave them positive law. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt. But now to the Gentile didn't have a law. He didn't have that. So Paul talks about the law of the conscience. But even there, in that context, the law of the conscience, who has not violated their conscience? Everybody has. Yeah. But even then, you'll violate it. You'll train your conscience, and you try to do the right thing, and then you'll make a mistake in violating your conscience. And I'm kind of working off of Paul's statement in Romans 2, where he says, even the Gentiles are guilty of sin. However... What you're asking me here in verse, what was that, 16? That God, uh, uh, God permitted it. He did not approve it. He did not approve what the Gentiles were doing, but he did allow it. Until the day and the time which all men would come to the unity of the faith, Ephesians 4. Yes, It would be a patriarchal type of situation whereby God would have to deal with them on that basis. So what you have is two lines of law. You got a law given to the Jews. You got a law of patriarchy where this person, this Gentile, this, this pagan is following the dictates of his own heart. But now all that stops 
at the cross, and now there's only one law for everybody, the law of Christ. So there are two laws going on at the same time under this Old Testament dispensation. Under the Old Testament dispensation, what we have is the focus on the law of the Jews. God gave the Jews. That's the focus of our Old Testament. But God had given laws to these uh, Gentile people. And uh, Melchizedek was a Gentile. And so you have uh, Balaam was a Gentile. Uh, you have a Gentile patriarchal type of law running parallel to that of the Jewish dispensation. And the focus on the Old Testament is this Jewish dispensation which is bringing us to Christ. And that was the focus of the Old Testament. And now Christ is the focus of the New Testament. So that's a pretty, pretty tricky question you're asking me there. And it's a good question to, it's a good question to consider. What about these um, Gentiles back then? Now let me, let me ask this further clarification. I hope it clarifies. What about them now? All men everywhere are under the law of Christ. All men are amenable to the law of Christ. I don't care where they live. I don't care who they are. I don't care what they do. Everybody is subject to the law of Jesus Christ and must repent and obey. Uh, somebody, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was all sorts of sacrifices, weren't there? And for different reasons, sin offerings and that kind of thing, burnt offerings. And so all of that had to be um, uh, taken into consideration. Well, these are good questions, and I'm happy to deal with them as best as I can. And it naturally comes up. Now, we mentioned a little bit about that in 16, in the generations gone by. Uh, he, now this translation said permitted. Uh, permitted, I think, is okay, so long as we understand he did not approve. He permitted, but he didn't approve. And now, that's a big point in Acts chapter 17. Now God commands all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17.30. I see there, Paul's talking to Gentiles there, and pagans. And he's saying, now you've got to repent. This is the deal that God has in store for you now. Well, thank you for that. Who else has a comment or question along these lines that would help us uh, understand this? I'm in Acts chapter 14, and uh, uh, I was dealing with this restraining the crowd, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. I'm in verse 19. Well, that's more of this crowd, you see, the dissatisfied back during Iconium. Pisidia, Iconium, Pisidian Antioch, they've traveled. Now, they had to travel quite a bit if they're chasing Paul down. And I can almost imagine the argument that they would be giving these pagan people. They would come along and say, now this is just my surmising. But they would come along and say, these guys cause trouble where we live. You don't want to be worshiping them. These guys are troublemakers, and we had to run them out of town. <coughs> After all, we were about to stone him in Iconium. We had, now, here he is doing the same thing over here. And so they got this crowd worked up in Lystra to um, uh, stone Paul, and they did. So Lystra becomes a pretty prominent city in our discussions in the New Testament, not only because of this stoning, but also because of we've got a young individual here who's probably converted by Paul while there in Lystra named Timothy. So Timothy comes from Lystra. His mother, his grandmother, Eunice and Lois 
We read about them in 1 Timothy. We read about Timothy in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. This is where Timothy comes up. Timothy's right along. He's a, he's a right-hand man. And this is where he begins. Now, there is no synagogue in um, Lystra that I know of. There was a synagogue in Iconium. And so they would have to travel. Let's study, let's study this out just for a few minutes. And I don't want to uh, be tedious at all, but I want to help you see as much as we can see from the text that we have before us. I'm going to go to 2 Timothy chapter, uh, well, I'll start in chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And um, let's see, 13 is always a good place to begin. And 14, you, however, continue in the things which you have learned and become uh, convinced of, speaking to Timothy, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Well, I'm reading 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I read verse 15. The reason a thought came to my mind was because it refers to his childhood. They were teaching him as a young child about the sacred scripture, which would be the Old Testament. Well, where? Well, they probably went to synagogue service in Iconium. There was no synagogue in Lystra. Well, while we're doing this, let's keep it up. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And... Um, Let's see, about verse 3, 4, I thank God, 2 Timothy 1, verse 3, I thank God whom I served with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that is in you as well. Well, this passage comes to my mind because of the tears. Well, what tears would he be referring to there other than maybe the stoning at Lystra where we are here in Acts chapter 14? And so Paul goes back in some of these letters and he recounts some of these historical incidents that took place in the life of um, Timothy and others. Notice... Uh, uh, I'm back in the book of Acts now and I'm in Acts 16. Because this passage came to my mind about Timothy. Acts 16 and 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken by the brethren who were in Lystra and where? Iconium. And so this was Timothy's home area. And I'm saying that they taught him as a child the scriptures... And that they taught him as a child of scripture, taking him to synagogue and synagogue school in Iconium. Now his father was a Greek. He was not um, uh, Jewish. His mother was Jewish. Well, we find that Paul is stoned at Lystra. So Lystra becomes a pretty important historical benchmark, uh, especially on the first missionary journey. Yes, sir. Yeah. 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 Well, it could happen. Uh, we, we saw it happen with Jesus. The crowd would turn against him. Jesus comes in on Friday 
and everybody's throwing palm branches down and their cloaks down on the ground and, and saying, Hosanna in the highest. And they're praising him as he comes into Jerusalem. By oh, That's Monday. By Friday, they're crucifying him. And so the crowd can turn, especially when you get a mob mentality going, like I think I see them having here at Lystra. So I think you're right to see how this crowd could turn against them so quickly, and I think we've tried to see that, and we can see how that, you know, never follow a multitude to do evil, okay? And so it's very easy to do, and don't uh, get involved, and don't get caught up, caught up in that, and that's what's happening here. Well, let's see, where am I now? I'm in Acts chapter 14, and uh, what's my next uh, point to be made? And that... Uh, 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 verse 20, I suppose, I guess we've uh, discussed that. I think I discussed the fact that they just about stoned Paul in uh, Iconium. That was back in the earlier part of the chapter. And when an attempt was made, verse 5, by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat, mistreat and to stone them, verse 6, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derby, So they move on further east. And so they were planning to stone Paul at Iconium. He leaves and goes to Lystra. Nothing is said of Lyconia. Iconium is where they were going to stone him. Nothing is said about anything happening at Lyconia. He comes to Lystra, which is the next city on the stop, and they stone him. Now, Let's go a little further in our discussion. But while the disciples stood around him at verse 20, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby. Well, did they stone him to death or not? The question has always been raised. Was Paul actually dead? Did God raise him up from the dead? And I don't know that I could say that. I could say that they supposed he was dead. That's what the text says. They drug him out of the city. <coughs> now, that's interesting to me because where did they stone Stephen? Back here in chapter 7, they drug him outside the city and stoned him out there. Well, they didn't wait for Paul. They just stoned him right inside the city. And once they thought that they had him killed with the stones, then they drug him outside the city. And so, but while the disciples stood around him, he got up and he entered. Uh, they suppose Paul dragged him out of the city, verse 19, supposing him to be dead. And so evidently he was not dead. The best I can make out of that is he wasn't dead. Perhaps he was close to being dead, but yet he wasn't. And he gets up with the help of the disciples that are there at Lystra. Already disciples have been made at Lystra. And they um, help him and he goes back into the city. Yes, You know, that's a good question. You ask a good question there, and I don't know. The question is, you know, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul has this vision of heaven, and it's quite a passage of Scripture um, where he saw things that he was not allowed to discuss. And he uses that phrase. He didn't know whether he was in the body or whether he was out of the body. Could that have happened at this instance when he was stoned at Lystra? Maybe so. I don't know. That is a thought. 
That is the thought, that the events he describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 might have taken place during this particular time at Lystra when he was being stoned, but I don't know that. I don't know that. Pardon me? Could have just got knocked out. And so um, that could have been. But see that point there about he didn't know whether he was in the body or out of the body kind of leads us to believe you know, maybe so, I don't know. It would just be speculation on my part. But 2 Corinthians 12 is a very interesting chapter. You ought to read that. You ought to read that. Anybody else? Anybody else? <coughs> Excuse me. Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, I don't know that I can. My thought is the disciples picked him up and took him there to take care of him. He's bruised, he's broken, he may have broken ribs. They thought he was dead. He was battered and beaten enough that the people who stoned him thought he was dead. So my thought would be that these disciples who gathered around him carried him back into Lystra there to take care of him, tend to his needs, wounds, mend him as best they possibly could. Now that would be my thought on it. And I just don't know, but he does go back to Lystra. Then the next day he goes from Lystra on to Derby, which is further east. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure God's providential protection was there even though he suffered the stoning, which is no easy thing to do. I can't imagine what that would be like. But at any rate, he is stoned, left for dead, does go back into the city, I suppose to help take care of his wounds. And then as he recovers, and the next day, he's up and he's gone to the next city, Derby, preaching the gospel. So I've said this before, and I, you probably remember me saying it, the focus the man has is unbelievable to me. He never loses sight of the focus, the purpose, the mission. He's on it all the time. He never gets off of it. And that's just amazing to me. Yes, sir. Well, there you go. That's, yeah, that's a good point, Max. Max brings up the point about perseverance, and he certainly had it. I guess that's the word. I'm saying focus. I guess the better word would be perseverance. He certainly had it. Yes, sir. Some way. Yeah, some way. Now, I'm sure it was no pleasant thing to go through. God providentially, I think, was taking care of it. Some actually think he died and was raised from the dead. I don't know that I can go that far. Uh, all I can do is go with what I've got, and I don't want to go beyond that. And what I've got is he was left for dead, and then they, they helped him up and took him back and tended to his wounds. Yes, ma'am. If he could shake the fiber off his hand and live, well, he was probably stopped, like he said. Again, he, came back. he came back, yeah. Holy, right, yeah, that's right. Well, he did that. 
Yeah, uh, that uh, the viper. And of course, Mark chapter 16, the long ending of Mark, uh, there talks about that promise which Christ gave the apostles that if they'd be bitten by any deadly thing that it would not harm them. And that happened to him. All right, somebody else along any of these? Uh, yes, sir. He's rugged. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, he's rugged. Yeah, yeah. He just went right back to it. I think you're right. Well, if you'll remember what kind of guy he was before he was a Christian. I mean, he was focused. He, he was focused on persecuting the church. Now, after he's been converted, which truly shows conversion and a change of heart and a change of life. Now, all of that focus, all of that energy is fulfilling the mission of Christ. Have to admire him. Have to admire uh, the Apostle Paul. Yeah. Absolutely. In fact, in more than one place, Paul says, imitate me so far as I imitate Christ. In other words, he's saying, follow my example insofar as I'm following the example of Christ. So there's no doubt that the life he lived was an encouraging, inspiring type of thing for those around him and those disciples. And what's interesting to me is that there are disciples there already uh, by his work. Those disciples came to his rescue, and that is in verse 21. After they had preached the gospel to that city, now I guess I'm in... Uh, 20, the disciples stood around him, verse 20, and he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So many disciples have been made in Derbe. Don't know how many, but many disciples have been made in Derby by his preaching the gospel. Now, Derby is as far, if you're looking at some of those Bible maps, you know, in the back of your Bible, Derby is about as far east as they're going to get on the first missionary journey. And you see what they're doing. Now, that's kind of interesting to me, and I'll just bring this up for your thought and consideration. And that is, Derby so far east had been kind of an easy deal to go from Derby back to Antioch across land. Now, they started to Antioch of Syria, which is north of Israel. And then they went to Paphos, you know, and uh, the Cilicia and Cyprus, Paphos, and then went on up to, to um, um, Perga. And then up, that's where John Mark left the work, and then on up to Antioch of Pisidia. Then they swing back east. Well, as they were headed east, it had been easy for them just to keep going east and carry them right on back to Antioch. But they didn't. What did they do? They turned around and retraced their steps and they go back visiting these congregations, strengthening these brethren, and they're going back again, recounting their tracks and their steps to encourage them along the way. And it says that for us here, doesn't it? Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples. So it would have been easy for them to go on east and keep going. And they'd head on home that way because that would be the quickest way to go. But not this group. They turn around, they go back the same way they came, but they go back with a purpose. They're strengthening the, um, the souls of the disciples. Notice the word soul here is used for the person, the soul. There are times when the word soul means the eternal part of man that lives forever in heaven. 
Sometimes the word soul can, re can refer to an individual person. Well, here that's what he's saying. Here, Luke does, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. What do you suppose he means here? I'm thinking about Luke recording the message. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Well, that probably has a bearing on that. You know, out on the Damascus Road where, where Christ appeared to Saul, I've shown him what great things he's going to suffer for my name's sake. And he, you know, he had mentioned this to Ananias, you know, in, um, in the street named Straits. So that probably had some bearing on it as well. Yes, sir? Well, there you go. Yeah, that's right. That's a good thought about that, that you got to keep going, keep going. You don't give up. You just keep going and... You keep insisting. He uses the word kingdom here. Uh, let's think a little bit about the use of the word kingdom in this passage. They were already in the kingdom. But now he says now, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I think what he has reference to here is heaven. Sometimes the word kingdom can refer to heaven. And I think he's referencing heaven in this regard. It's going to be tribulation before we enter into heaven. They were already in the church. Now most of the time you can take as a rule of thumb in the New Testament, if he's talking about kingdom, he's talking about the church of Christ. The church that belongs to Christ, as he's talking about. But now here, I think in this context, the word kingdom, we'd have to say, probably refers to eternity. Somebody, yes, sir. Mike. Well, I think I'm kind of like you. I would have taken a shortcut home. But I think the idea that these young Christians need strengthening, these young Christians need help. You know, we've helped them see the truth, now we've got to help them see it through. And so I think going back was the motivation to help them strengthen them and encourage them along the way. Now, when you're a young Christian, you know, you're vulnerable. And it could go either way with you, but they were saying, we need to get back there and help them and strengthen them. And so I think that was the motivation behind that in verse 22. <coughs> Excuse me. Yes, ma'am. They're Christians. Oh, yeah. That's what I think. I think he's referring to heaven there. Yes, sir.
Well, now your point there, I think, is a good point, and that is the idea that even though you see these atrocities, these things like earthquake and famine and that kind of thing, doesn't necessarily mean the end of time, does it? And you can read that also in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And so the point of that is to be prepared. You must be prepared for whenever Christ does come again. So I think you raise a good point there. Let me get to this uh, point here in verse 23. When they had appointed elders for them, oh boy, here we go. How could I miss this? <clears throat> when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed and fasting, with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Well now, what do we got now? They go back strengthening in the churches, but now they're appointing elders in these congregations. And how long have these congregations been going? Well, they hadn't been that old. The Greek word here is presbyteros, which is one of the words, a number of words, five words used for elder in the New Testament. Presbyteros is one, which basically means older man in a general context, an older one. Whereas in this particular context, it's talking about the office of work. And so they appoint elders for them in every church. So that's part of the strengthening process. The question comes to my mind, and I pose it for your consideration. How is it that these people could be so qualified so soon? It could very well be that you have people there who are very mature in the Jewish faith. It could very well be that we have people who have had hands laid upon them, received the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. Could very well be that we've got people who are very sensitive and they're growing and, and growing and maturing spiritually speaking. It is part of God's organization for his church, Philippians 1 verse 1. And so I don't have a problem with Paul and Barnabas going back to these congregations and appointing elders under these circumstances. And then later he will by inspiration tell us what the qualifications of elders are. First Timothy chapter three, Titus chapter one, and that the church today of course has got to look out among them for elders that meet those divine qualifications. So we're seeing them organize the church according to the divine pattern. We're seeing them strengthening and putting the church together by means of elders leading in matters of expediency. Now somebody, yeah, Mike. Yeah, yeah, that's the strengthening, right, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Well, there you go. Well, I thought, well I'm glad you raised that point. I'd, because that's part of the strengthening, isn't it? To keep the church organized. Did I hear something? What was that? Oh, man. <coughs> yes, sir. I'm, I'm talking to the guy behind you right now. <laughs> you go ahead, Dr. Perry, go ahead. Yeah, well, I think you, now that's a good question. I'll talk about it next week. <laughs> He's got a good question going there and that matter of appointed. I think they probably followed the pattern in Acts 7 
whereby the apostle said, Now look out among you seven good men to take this work on of feeding widows and the daily needs. Then when the seven good men were selected by means of an appointment type ceremony, laying on of hands, something like that, then they were, and I'm trying to use my words carefully here, they were appointed. <laughs> they received that work. So I don't think, now I don't think, now Perry's raised a good question here, I don't think they just decide, well, we're going to appoint you, me and Barnabas are going to appoint you. I don't think that's it. I think the congregation looked out among themselves and said, these are men that we would respect and said, okay, you will be appointed as elder. Not that they took it on themselves to say, I'm going to appoint you, I'm going to appoint you. The congregation took it upon themselves to make the selection, and when they did, then in turn they became the appointed elders, and I'm basing that on Acts chapter 7. Now, that takes more explanation, Perry. You got a good question there in the last five minutes of my class here. Uh, good question there for that. But I will uh, I'll work on that some more. Marvin. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm only organized as far as the New Testament is organized. That's the only organization I know. Now, somebody else. Yes, sir. And I'm sure that's a part of it. I have no doubt that's probably a part of it. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Right, right. They didn't have the Word of God like we have it today. They didn't, did they? Yes, sir. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That's what it was. How many elders did they appoint? More than one. They appointed elders, didn't they? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah. Do that today. Yeah, that's right. And especially in a new work like that, like you're saying. That's a good point. Somebody else had something for me here. I don't want to miss anybody. Do we have another bell? Has the bells rung yet? You know, when you ring those bells back there, Clint, when you ring a bell, lean in on it, man, so I can hear it. Don't just give it a quick, quick bump, but lean in on that thing. That way I can hear it. So we got the bells, and we've come to the conclusion. I'm still in Acts chapter 14. Well, we'll, we'll bring this back up next time, Lord willing, and I'll try to start it off around 24.